Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. This is a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. On today's episode, we'll cover the latest news around Serie A, Napoli, and Europe, including the COVID situation with Napoli and the European draws. In part 2, we'll preview Napoli's huge match on Sunday against Juventus. And in part 3, we'll recap the three round one matches that were played in the middle of the week. So I want to start with the Serie A news. On Wednesday, Undersecretary of Health Sandra Zampa was on a morning TV show where she addressed the outbreak of COVID at Genoa. She said that the protocols are clear and that the championship must be suspended for 14 days. However, Minister of Sports Vincenzo Spadafora responded saying that he does not believe the conditions require the championship to be suspended. On Thursday, Deputy Minister of Health Pierpaolo Sileri gave his thoughts on Radio Cusano. He said, if there is a team with many positives, that team will obviously have problems playing. It is quite different to have other positives in all the other teams. At the moment, the risk of suspension of the championship is not there because the problem concerns only one team. A solution will have to be found for that team, but if there were so many positives in many teams, then the problem would be wider. I don't think the championship should be suspended today unless there are no positives in other teams in the next few days. Later on Thursday, we learned that only the Genoa-Torino match had been suspended. That makes sense to me. Neither are in European competition, so there will be plenty of opportunities to make up that match. Also, by Friday, the number of positive cases at Genoa had increased from 14 to 19. In typical Serie A fashion, new rules were introduced in response to this incident with the intent of limiting the spread of COVID. These rules were adopted from UEFA, 
with some changes. I'll give you a quick summary here. First, if a club has one or more positive cases but are still able to field 13 registered players, including a keeper, then their upcoming match will not be postponed, and they define a registered player as someone who has been assigned the jersey number. However, if a team has 10 registered players contract COVID in a span of 7 days, that team will be allowed to postpone that match, but each club will be allowed only one postponement. After that, if a team is unable to field 13 players, they will be given a 3-0 loss, and if this happens several times, then they will have a point deducted in the table. So that's a good segue into the Napoli news portion of the segment. On Tuesday, Napoli issued an official statement confirming that the first round of COVID tests came back negative, which was a good start. But as we learned from Genoa, that doesn't mean that the people they tested don't have it. The second round of tests were completed on Thursday, and sure enough, on Friday, the club confirmed that one player, Piotr Zielinski, and one staff member, Giandomenico Costi, tested positive. Four or five tests were inconclusive, but those swabs were retaken and came back negative. Now, we don't know whether they caught it from Genoa, Last episode, we talked about how the likelihood of transmitting in a match is low, and we know that the three players that did make contact, Andrea Maziello, Valombrami, and Davide Beraschi, all tested negative. I think it's just as likely, if not more likely, that these are isolated cases, as we've seen with other clubs around Serie A and around Europe. This has led to a lot of debate online about whether Napoli's match against Juventus should be postponed, Personally, I don't think it would be wise to play this match. This has nothing to do with Insignia being out. I think Napoli have an advantage playing this match earlier in the season before Pirlo figures out the system and the squad that works best for him, which he probably won't know until after the transfer window closes. I get that the schedule is messy with both clubs playing in European competition and with the Euros in the summer, but I think they can probably shorten the Christmas break for these two clubs to play the match later. That said, knowing said, yeah, if there are no positives in the next round of tests, then this match will probably be played. The third test will be done early Saturday morning so that the results can be attained by Saturday evening, which will ultimately dictate whether Napoli play Juventus on Sunday. In other news, Napoli Feminile have appointed Nicola Crisano as their new general manager. He said, I am happy to go back to football with President Carlino. Moreover, in a young and intriguing reality such as Napoli's women, we will structure ourselves for the now imminent transition to professionalism, trying to make this club a real and own excellence of our city. In transfer news, with the market coming to a close, it seems Inter and Napoli will postpone a possible transaction involving Matias Vecino until January. Both sides have bigger priorities. Napoli are working on the sale of Milik and possibly Maksimovic, while Inter are working on the sale of Skriniar. In fact, Napoli could abandon Vecino altogether. A name that's really heating up in these final days of the transfer window is Bakayoko. With Milan signing Tonali, they likely don't need Bakayoko anymore, and it seems that Napoli have become the favorites to sign him. He had arguably his best season at Milan under Gattuso, and though they had a rift, apparently that was mended before Milan sold him. Gazzetta dello Sport are reporting that Napoli have offered Chelsea 2 million euros for a loan with the obligation to buy, and that Napoli are willing to pay a salary of 2 million euros compared to his current salary of 3.5 million. With Milik, it seems another possible destination is no longer available. Napoli were in talks with Tottenham, but they have signed Carlos Vinicius from Benfica on a 3 million euro loan with an obligation to buy for 45 million euros. That's the same Vinicius that was once owned by Napoli, though he never actually played for us. We loaned him to Rio Ave for a year, the same Rio Ave that just played that incredible Europa League qualifier against Milan this week. 
Then we loaned him to Monaco for a year before selling him to Benfica. The current possibility is that Milik goes to Fiorentina. According to Tuto Sports, Fiorentina are willing to pay 5 million euros on a one-year loan with an obligation to buy for 25 million euros. Of course, for that to happen, Napoli would have to extend Milik for a year. And Fiorentina probably won't pull the trigger on that move unless they sell Federico Chiesa, who appears to be getting closer and closer to a move to Juventus. Moving on, German tabloid Bild are reporting that Amin Yunus will return to Germany with Eintracht Frankfurt on a two-year loan at 1 million euros per season with the right to buy. We could also see Adam Yunus join Hellas Verona on loan, but Sky Sport are reporting that Torino are interested in the striker as well. Elsewhere, L'Equipe are reporting that Lille have rejected Napoli's offer for Bubakari Sumare. Meanwhile, Primavera player Zinedine Mashash has joined VVV Venlo in the Dutch Eredivisie on a one-year loan. And finally, on Thursday, Napoli Feminile announced the signing of 26-year-old Australian Alexandra Hoon. Speaking of the Feminile, they will return to action on Saturday morning against Inter. By the time you hear this match, this one will probably be over and we'll make sure to recap it in our next episode. In Europe, the draws for the Champions League and the Europa League group stages were completed on Thursday and Friday respectively. Starting with the Champions League, the draw was quite balanced and the Italian teams fared quite well. Juventus are in Group G along with Barcelona, Dinamo Kiev and Hungarian club Ferenc Varos. Inter are in Group B along with Real Madrid, Shakhtar Donetsk and Borussia Mönchengladbach. Atalanta are in Group D along with Liverpool, Ajax and FC Midtjylland. And Lazio are in Group F with Zenit, Borussia Dortmund and Club Bruges. Looking at this draw, I think all four Italian clubs have a really good chance of reaching the round of 16. Atalanta probably got the toughest group out of the four with Liverpool and Ajax. And Lazio were probably the most fortunate. Zenit were probably the weakest side in Pot 1, so Lazio have a legitimate chance of reaching the knockout stage. The Europa League draw was done on Friday, and of course for Napoli fans, this was the one that we cared about. Napoli landed in Group F with Real Sociedad, Alkmaar, and Rijeka FC. Real Sociedad is probably the toughest opponent coming from a top 5 league. While I do think that Napoli advances out of the group stage, this is not as easy of a group as everyone seems to think it is. Alkmaar are off to a slow start to the Eredivisie with two draws, but when the Eredivisie was cancelled last season, they were tied with Ajax for top spot in the table. Even Rijeka finished third in the Croatia League last season. Napoli will play Alkmaar on October 22nd, followed by Sociedad on the 29th. Then we have Regica on November 5th and 26th. The return leg against Alkmaar is December 6th, and the return leg against Sociedad is December 10th. Roma landed in Group A with Swiss club Young Boys, Romanian side CFR Cluj, and Bulgarian side CSK Sofia. And Milan are in Group H, which is possibly the group of death. The other possibility, I think, is Group K. Milan is with Celtic, Czech side Sparta Prague, and Napoli's favorite dance partner, Lille. We'll close with the national team squads that were announced this week for the upcoming international break. No Napoli players were called, reportedly because of the recent COVID cases. Insigne is injured, but Meret and Di Lorenzo were left out. Mancini also included a number of different selections from the last time, which makes sense. He do want to try out different players at this stage. Mancini called Alessio Cranio, Gianluigi Donnarumma, Marco Silvestri, and Salvatore Sirigu in goal. At the back will be Francesco Acerbi, Cristiano Biraghi, Leonardo Bonucci, Giorgio Chiellini, Danilo D'Ambrosio, Alessandro Florenzi, Manuel Lazzari, Gianluca Mancini, Angelo Ogbona, and Leonardo Spinazzola. In the midfield, Mancini called Nicolo Barella, Giacomo Bonaventura, Gaetano Castrovilli, Brian Cristante, Giorginio, Manuel Locatelli, 
Stefano Sensi and Marco Verratti, and up top Andrea Bellotti, Domenico Berardi, Ciccio Caputo, Federico Chiesa, Stefan El Sharawi, Vincenzo Grifo, who was probably the biggest surprise, he plays on the wing for Freiburg in the Bundesliga, Ciro Immobile, Moise Kane, Kevin Lasagna, and Ricardo Orsolini. We also got Paolo Nicolato's U21 side, which is loaded with Serie A and B talent. The keepers are Atalanta's Marco Carneschi, Regina's Alessandro Plizzari, and Antella's Alessandro Russo. In defense are Lecce's Cloud Ajapong, Alessandro Bastoni, Pescara's Raul Bellanova, Verona's Nicolo Casale, Regina's Enrico Del Prato, Juventus's Gianluca Frabotta, Matteo Gabbia, Verona's Matteo Lovato, Spezia's Ricardo Marchizza, Spal's Marco Sala, and Pisa's Marco Varnier. In the midfield is Monza's Andrea Colpani and Davide Fratesi, Spezia's Giulio Maggiore, Venezia's Yusuf Malay, Empoli's Samuele Ricci, who we were linked to, Sandro Tonali, and Crotone's Nicolo Zanelato. Finally, up top are Patrick Cutrone, who I can't believe is still under 21. I feel like he's been around forever. Andrea Pinamonte, Gianluca Scamacca, and Ricardo Sotil. So that will do for the news. In part 2, we'll preview Napoli's next match, which is against Juventus. Next, let's preview Napoli's upcoming match against Juventus. Napoli are coming off that lopsided 6-0 win over Genoa, while Juventus will be looking for redemption after drawing Roma. Both of these results could be a little misleading. I think Genoa will be fighting for survival this year, and I think the team they beat in Week 1, Crotone, will be relegated. Meanwhile, Juve played the final half hour of their match against Roma, with 10 men after Adrian Rabiot picked up a second yellow, so the draw ended up being a decent result. That said, prior to the second yellow, Juventus looked like a shadow of the club that defeated Sampdoria so handily the week prior. Juve's midfield did not look great against Roma. After Weston McKinney looked really good against Sampdoria, his performance in this match was lackluster at best. So again, you're left to wonder if that good performance was because it was against a weaker side. From the little I've seen, I think McKinney is a quality player. Every player has off days and this might have been his. Considering that Pirlo wants his side to win back possession pretty quickly, I thought Roma enjoyed a fair bit of possession in that match. Roma seemed to penetrate Juve's backline with relative ease, particularly on the counter-attack, and I think you can attribute that to two things. First, Bonucci is 33 and Chiellini is 36, and their age may finally be catching up to them. We saw how easily Mkhitaryan ran past Bonucci in the first half, and Mkhitaryan is 31 years old himself. The second reason was because of how Juve set up, which is three at the back when they have the ball, but four at the back without it. What that means is one of Danilo or Cuadrado are joining the attack. However, if one of those two get caught, then Juve are defending the counter with three men, which is exactly what happened on that Mkhitaryan chance. And up top, Alvaro Morata really didn't do much in the 57 minutes that he played. Granted, it was his first match and he didn't get a whole lot of service either, but he is the type of player that can have an excellent match one day and then disappear the next. 
So Juventus are certainly vulnerable. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups, which I think is tricky for both of these clubs. Juventus used a 3-5-2 in their opening match and a 3-4-1-2 in the Roma match, which is pretty similar. And like I mentioned, they drop into a 4-4-2 on the defensive side of the ball. Wojtek Szczesny will start in goal. In both matches, Pirlo has used Giorgio Chiellini at center left, Leonardo Bonucci in the middle, and Danilo at center right. When you think about it, Pirlo doesn't really have a whole lot of choice there. Matthias De Ligt is out for a while and Juventus just loaned Rugani to Ren, so that really only leaves Mehdi Demiral, who I actually like, but it seems Pirlo wants one of those back three to be able to join the attack, hence Danilo starting. And you can't really blame him, we saw Danilo make that run on the wing and play the cross into Ronaldo on the equalizer against Roma. In the midfield, Adrian Rabiot is out with the red card that we mentioned, so I think Rodrigo Bentancur will start in his place. Bentancur has similar qualities, so it seems like a logical move to me. Weston McKennie has started both matches at center left, so I think he is likely to start again, though I wouldn't be terribly surprised if Artur got a chance to start after that weaker performance from McKennie. Aaron Ramsey is likely the third center mid, or perhaps the trequartista in the 3-4-1-2. His form probably hasn't been any better since he joined Juventus, so I expect Pirlo to go back to him here. Out of the final four positions, two wingbacks and two attackers, I think three of those positions will be occupied by Juan Cuadrado, Dejan Kulusevski, and Cristiano Ronaldo. We know Ronaldo will start up top, but the other two are debatable. I thought, along with Ronaldo, Kulusevski was one of the few players to play well in both of Juventus' matches. That said, he seemed to have more success playing up top with Ronaldo. If he does, then we would see Cuadrado play on the right wing back and Gianluca Frabotta play at left wing back as we saw against Sampdoria. However, that would mean that new signing Alvaro Morata would start on the bench, which after his last performance wouldn't be terribly unwarranted. I think Morata will get another chance alongside Ronaldo though, and that would mean Klusevski drops to right wing back and Cuadrado moves over to left wing back. For Napoli, I agree with the reports that Gattuso will stick to the 4-3-1-2. We spoke last episode about how this formation matches up really well against a three-man backline. As I mentioned, Juventus defend in a 4-4-2 but could easily get caught with three at the back. Gattuso still seems to prefer David Ospina in big matches, so I think he will start in goal. I expect to see Koulibaly and Manolas return at center back, though we'll definitely have an eye out for Manolas and his back injury. I think we'll also see the same fullbacks with Giovanni Di Lorenzo on the right and Elsie Hisai on the left. With Piotr Zielinski out with COVID, I think we will see Diego Demis start in the double pivot with Fabian Ruiz, and I personally think we should be doing that all of the time anyways. Normally, Elif Almas would be an option to replace Zielinski, but with Insigne out for a month with a thigh injury, I think Elmas will replace him on the left wing. I mentioned how Juve's back line struggle with pacey attackers, especially on the counterattack, so it only makes sense to start Chucky Lozano on the right and Victor Osimhen at striker. He may not have scored, but he's had a huge influence on both of Napoli's wins, so I expect him to be the first option at striker here on out, though of course he will need to rest occasionally, which is probably when we'll see Petania. Finally, we should see Dries Mertens in that number 10 spot, where he seems to be pretty lethal so far. The match official is Daniele Doveri. His assistants are Filippo Melli and Daniele Bindoni. Giampaolo Calvareza is the fourth official. And Luigi Nasca is on the VAR and his assistant is Sergio Ranghetti. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 2-2 draw. I'll give the Napoli goals to Dries Mertens and Chucky Lozano. And I'll give the Juve goals to Cristiano Ronaldo and Dejan Kulusevski. 
I think Juventus are going to be eager to make up for their poor performance against Roma. While Napoli definitely have the pace advantage, I think we're really going to miss Insigne on the wing. I'm a huge Elmas fan, and I know he did well against Genoa, but Juventus are many levels above Genoa in every respect. I think Napoli also have the advantage in terms of our depth in the attack with Patania and Politano on the bench, and they'll be matched up against a pretty thin Juventus backline. I'm really intrigued by the midfield battle. I think Juve have the advantage there. I don't think there's a drop in quality from Rabiot to Bentancur. In fact, Bentancur could represent an improvement. Another really intriguing battle will be Manolas and Koulibaly versus Ronaldo and Kulusevski. I'm not sure if I want Kulusevski to start up top or on the wing. I think he's more of a threat to score up top, but I think there would be a massive mismatch if he's on the wing against Kisai. Both sides have plenty of depth, which could be an interesting aspect of this game as well. Both in terms of coaching ability and players available, I think Gattuso is better equipped to change his approach mid-match, which of course we saw him do against Parma. And overall, I do expect Napoli to be the better team, but Juve have that X-factor in Ronaldo, and as we saw against Roma, even if Juve are not at their best, all he needs is a decent cross and he could change the outcome of a match. So that's my review of Napoli versus Juventus. In part 3, we'll recap the matches from the middle of the week. This last part will be a little shorter than usual as we only have three matches to cover. We'll start with Inter Benevento. Inter won this one comfortably 5-2. Inter got a brace from Lukaku and goals from Gagliardini, Hakimi and Lautaro. Gianluca Caprari scored a brace for Benevento. We really got to see the depth of this Inter side. Having just played on the weekend, Antonio Conte made 8 changes to the squad that played against Fiorentina. Alexis Sanchez and Ashraf Hakimi, who were both excellent off the bench against Fiorentina, started in this one, and their strong play continued. Sanchez was all over the field, constantly picking out teammates. Hakimi assisted on Lukaku's first goal, and he scored his first in the Nerazzurri. In the midfield, Arturo Vidal and Roberto Gagliardini started over Nicolo Barella and Marcelo Brozovic. Vidal was forced to leave the match pretty early with a thigh injury. Gagliardini had an excellent match, he got a sweet connection on his volley on the second goal, and then he assisted Lukaku on the third, then he nearly scored a second in the 70th minute, but he smashed the bar. At the back, the main criticism of Inter in their match against Fiorentina was their defending. However, they started a back three of D'Ambrosio, Bastoni, and Kolarov in that one. 
This time Inter started Skriniar, De Vrij, and Kolarov, so you would think their defending would have been much better, but it really wasn't. You can't really blame the Inter defense for the first Benevento goal on that one, Handanovic played his pass straight to Caprari. Besides the goals though, Benevento did have their fair share of chances. Moncini had a few chances just after the break. On the first one he hit the upright and on the second one he got behind the Inter back line, but Handanovic did well to get off his line to clear to safety. And in the final moments of the match, Gianluca Lapadula had a clear break, but his finish was poor. Benevento was not very good in this match. As they said in the broadcast, they looked rough around the edges, their passing was not precise enough, and you can't afford to make mistakes against a side with the quality that Inter has. On the third goal, Montipo played his pass straight to Gagliardini. He did the same thing against Sampdoria, which resulted in a goal in that match too, and I defended Montipo after that one, but if he keeps it up, I won't be able to defend him much longer. I also don't understand why smaller clubs like Benevento insist on playing short goal kicks when they don't have the quality to play the ball out from the back, especially against a top side like Inter. I don't care that the goal kick rule changed. For those who didn't know prior to last season, the side taking the goal kick could not receive the pass inside the 18-yard box. Then last season, the rule was changed such that the team taking the goal kick can receive the pass anywhere outside of the 6-yard box but the opponent must stay outside of the 18-yard box. So the team taking the goal kick has a slight advantage there, but if you make two or three short passes inside the box, the opponent is going to close you down pretty quickly, and most of the time they end up clearing the ball out anyway, so you might as well just play a long goal kick. Benevento's defending on the fourth goal was pretty dreadful too. Letizia took way too long on the ball, which allowed Hakimi to nip in and put it past Montipo. It wasn't all bad for Benevento though. Caprari is off to a strong start. I was also impressed with the play of Brian Dabo in both of Benevento's matches, and had it not been for the play of Federico Barba at the back, I think Inter probably score a few more. Finally, there was a beautiful moment at the end of this match where the 1,000 Benevento supporters in attendance sang Ale Ale Ale, which is a great way to show support for their club and help boost their morale given the scoreline. Moving on, Atalanta defeated Lazio 4-1 in what was the match of the day. This was the first match of the season between two clubs who finished in the top four last season. Chiro Immobile was presented with his best striker trophy prior to the match, and Joaquin Correa was a late withdrawal, so Felipe Caicedo started in his place. This was a bit of an unusual match. Atalanta did not by any means dominate the match like the scoreline would suggest. In fact, Lazio had the lion's share of possession, and their play was very positive. They created chances right to the very end of the match. The difference was that, once again, Atalanta took their chances. We saw the same thing in Atalanta's first match against Torino, where they weren't necessarily the better team, at least not in the first half, but when the opportunities presented themselves, they took them. In the first half of this match, Atalanta had four goal-scoring opportunities and scored three of them. Also like their match against Torino, Atalanta's wingbacks, namely Hans Hattabor and Robin Gozins, played a key role in this one. Both of them scored and on the Hattabor goal they linked up together with Gozins playing the cross. That's the second volley goal after a run to the back post that Hattabor has scored in as many matches. Lazio's defending was pretty awful on that goal. Hattabor was left completely unmarked, but that doesn't take anything away from the quality of the finish. Papu Gomez somehow keeps getting better with age. He was involved in three of Atalanta's four goals, two of which he scored himself. He scored the first with his right foot and the second with his left. As they do, Atalanta allowed Lazio plenty of opportunities, however, unlike their opponents, Lazio didn't take them. Immobile hit the bar in the first half, that would have made the score 2-1, and then less than 10 minutes later, Atalanta scored their third. Then in the 53rd minute, Marco Sportiello made an excellent save on Adam Marusic from close range, 
And then the biggest miss for me was by Immobile, who was one-on-one with Sportello in the 59th minute, but couldn't find the back of the goal. That was a huge moment in the match. Caicedo had just scored moments prior to that chance, so the momentum was swinging. If Immobile scores there, then suddenly the score is 3-2, and Lazio's back in a match that seemed like it was already over. Instead, he hits the side netting, and only two minutes later, Pabu Gomez scores his second. So instead of being down 3-2, Lazio go down 4-1, which effectively ended the match. Credit to Lazio though, like I mentioned earlier, they played right to the very end. The other match that was played on Wednesday was Spezia Udinese. Spezia won this one 2-0. Matteo Ricci thought he opened the scoring in the second minute, but that goal was overturned for what I thought was a fairly dubious offside call. If I'm not mistaken, we didn't get to see the graphic that shows the line. That was unfortunate though because it would have been Ricci's first goal in Serie A. Spezia did go ahead in the 29th minute when Andre Galabinov headed in his second of the season. Normally Juan Musso is very good but I thought he could have done better on that one. Spezia goalkeeper Yeroen Zot had to be removed in the 63rd minute after appearing to injure his groin so veteran keeper Rafael came in and moments later Rafael made an excellent save on Kevin Lasagna from only a few feet away. Udinese have really struggled to score in these opening matches of the season. One thing I really like about this Spezia team is they have a certain edge to them. They're very aggressive, perhaps a little too aggressive sometimes. Claudio Terza was shown a second yellow in the 66th minute. Even up a man Udinese couldn't score though. Fernando Forestieri came close in the 75th minute, but he hit the upright from close range. Galabinov put the match away in the 94th minute with his third of the season. This was a really heads-up play by both Rafael and Galabinov. The Udinese backline fell asleep for a second and didn't realize that Galabinov was behind them, but inside his own half. Rafael had just caught the ball in the box and it looked like he was going to go down and stay down to kill some time, but when he saw Galabinov, he popped up to his feet and played a quick long ball to send Galabinov on a clear break from midfield and the striker finished. Just like Benevento did against Sampdoria on match day 2, this was a huge win for Spezia against a club that they will probably be competing with for survival. So that will do it for our review of the midweek fixtures, and it will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. If you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. We'll be back early next week to review Napoli's big match against Juventus. Hopefully they play, and hopefully it's a win. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre!
Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.